Greetings, everybody. This is your DPS for this week. We're a couple of days late. I'm fighting a throat infection. So fortunately for me, I banked this interview about six weeks ago. It's with Adam Hilton. He's a repeat DPS guest. His book is finally landing here. It's called True Blues, The Contentious Transformation of the Democratic Party. It's coming out this month. And it's exactly what it sounds like, a very serious scholarly but leftist approach to analyzing the contentious transformations of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party that has been bestowed on us today is the result of many battles inside that party and in broader society as a whole over the past 175, 200 some odd years. And so we're going to break all those down, going all the way back to this pre-Civil War and Reconstruction eras to present. So no small feat for a two-hour podcast. You guys are going to really enjoy this one. We get into the weeds as, you know, all the best DPS episodes tend to do, but we're not going to lose you. These are all really important and serious questions for anybody working in, around, or somehow in the vicinity of the Democratic Party today, which is to say... All of you, whether you like it or not, all of you. So anyway, you know, uh, I, this is a two-hour podcast. Many people would be putting the second half behind a paywall, but I don't want to do that. I want this podcast to be available to everyone. Political education is the name of the game, and that's what I try to take seriously here on DPS. So if you agree with me that political education is of paramount concern for the left for our project going forward, I encourage you to head to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. I've got some banger, banger episodes coming out in the next, well, several weeks for sure, because I've already banked those episodes and we've got many, many more going far into the year. So head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and support this project. I think the importance of the upcoming episodes are going to speak for themselves. There aren't many other podcasts out there that are speaking directly to the organizational and political questions that plague the left today, quite like this one, if I do say so myself. You know, I think the socialist podcast ecosystem has gotten a little too big for its britches in some ways, and they don't like to get into the nitty gritty. They don't like to talk about DSA organizational politics. They don't like to talk about, you know, the kind of nerdy inside baseball stuff. They would like to rather uh, address big picture kind of mass popular issues that get you 100s of thousands of listens. And that's fine. We need big mass popular podcasts, but we also need podcasts that are not afraid to talk about contentious debates inside of, say, the DSA. We also need podcasts who are not afraid to go deep into the weeds about the nature and state of the Democratic Party and what that means for socialist organizing today. And as you guys probably guessed, that podcast, I think, is DPS. There are only a couple others out there like it. I encourage you to support those as well, not just this one. And I suspect you know who those are. Anyway, enough out of me. I'm going to go rest my throat. You guys enjoy this two-hour beast of an interview with Adam Hilton. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, coming back from a little bit of a winter break. Joining me today is another friend from my York days with Leo Panich. This is episode four in the Leo Panich tribute series. His name is Adam Hilton. He writes about political parties, in particular the Democratic Party, its history, its transformations, and all the rest of it. He teaches politics at Mount Holyoke College. Thanks for coming back on DPS. Pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to have you on, my man, not only because you're a former colleague, not only because we shared some uh, glasses of bourbon in uh, Toronto in the freezing cold during the heady days of grad school and all the rest of it, because you are one of the few people talking and thinking seriously about political parties and their role in, in what we call state theory here on DPS. You're one of Leo's kids, so we wouldn't expect anything less than a serious treatment of politics, the state, society, and, and all the rest of it. But let's launch into some of your, your academic work uh, before we come back and, and kind of touch on Leo's influence here. You've got a book. It's coming out. I do. I can't believe Next it. month. <laughs> yeah. This is the this is the dissertation. It's happening. It's finally happening. You took on a project that would make almost everybody quake in their pantaloons, uh, which is just a, you know, I don't know, like a, a broad history and theorization, contextual, whatever, of the Democratic Party in the United States in the what 20th century and beyond. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Why I mean, there's certainly a gap in the literature. A lot of writing has uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, a lot of people have written reams and reams on the Republican Party, much more interesting party, historically speaking, in its rise. I mean, a friend of the show, Matt Carp, is writing about, around, on the, the Republican Party right now. You talk about the party of radicals and its amazing, you know, upsurge and like mid-19th century, of course, you know, Lincoln and anti-slavery and all of these amazing, and then this transformation in the 20th century. It's so fascinating. The Democratic Party surely pales by comparison. And yet it's really important to understanding how we got here today with progressive politics. We have the advent of the People's Party signed on uh, by the likes of Cornell West and other left celebrities. We've had many attempts inside the Green Party, people talking about this in DSA for founding a third party. And all of it centers on critiques of the Democratic Party. So you dare to go where no leftist, I'm not going to say has ever, but likes to go, which is right into the belly of the beast i.e. the Democratic Party. Tell us about why you got into that. Yeah, well, um, I mean, this circles back to the influence of of Leo as a supervisor and a mentor and a good friend. And, you know, you can think of Leo's body of work as encompassing, you know, really several major political concerns uh, over the course of his lifetime. Probably, you know, most famous is his more recent work co-authored with Sam Gindon on the American state and particularly the role and connection between the state and finance. And many smart people, Steve Marr, who I know you've had on the show several times, have taken up and and deepened that project and and continued that vein of intellectual work. And one of the things that gets overshadowed slightly is, is Leo uh, had done uh, fantastic work on political parties, specifically looking carefully at the Labor Party, the British Labor Party, and the insurgency, the new left insurgency uh, within that political party in the 1970s and 80s. And I was really taken by that work. And I, I thought there were a lot of interesting insights that I wanted to develop. But of course, being an American, <laughs> despite studying in Canada, 
and being on the on the left side of of the political spectrum, my concern was with trying to understand the Democratic Party. As it turns out, there was also, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, a major left-wing insurgency inside the Democratic Party in the late 1960s, early 1970s, that, that to both Leo and my surprise bore a striking resemblance to what had happened in the uh, British Labour Party uh, a decade later. And then around the time of, of wrapping up this dissertation that I did under Leo, okay. uh, it was 2016, and we had... We were all <laughs> groping for explanations about what the hell was going on with the rise of Donald Trump in the Republican right. Party. And although, you know, overshadowed by the Trump presidency and political reverberations uh, of that, but but foremost to many of us on the left, was the simultaneous insurgency of Bernie Sanders uh, in the Democratic Party. So the question of who governs parties, who rules parties, how does power work inside parties, was foremost on my mind when approaching this project. As I've mentioned in recent episodes of DPS, in the Leo Panic series, talking about Leo's book with Colin Lees on the the, the new updated book on um, the UK Labour Party, talking in, in relation to that episode about Ralph Miliband's Parliamentary Socialism, all books on political parties and the state must open with a great first sentence. That's the rule, Adam. I don't know if you, if you, if any, if anybody told you about that, that is the rule, but whether you knew it or not, you lived up to it. You lived up to the challenge, your first sentence in this book in the introduction. Anyway, who governs political parties? First, hell of a first sentence in, in today's context with the near dissolution of the Republican party, uh, post Trump, uh, really kind of, uh, trying to find its grounding, its bearings and who, who runs the thing, what, what base, um, all the rest, what's their project following Trump, all the rest of it. Of course, in the midst of the, um, often kind of chaotic environment inside the Democratic Party, where you have the squad sitting, you know, side by side with uh, the likes of not only you know, Nancy Pelosi, but Abigail Spanberger and Joe Manchin and all and Kristen Sinema and all the rest of it. Um, who governs political parties is a question that, again, you know, not many people would uh, have the guts to take on. And yet you did it, my friend. You, 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 you ventured into the terrain that I wouldn't want anything to do with. So how do you conceptualize this question? You're, the opening kind of gambit here in the introduction is is an intensely theoretical one, but I think it's one where, you know, in which like, you know, DPS listeners will be quite at home with. We, we like to dig into this uh, theoretical meat. So take us through how you how you even go about conceptualizing that question, contingency and agency and historicity and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, you know, our answer to the question of who governs political parties really depends on what we think parties are. Mm. And while, um, you know, there were many of us, I mean, all of us who, who were concerned about where American politics was going to go in the post-Opama years, we were all asking kind of, you know, this question, who governs parties? But, you know, the, the insurgencies of Donald Trump and um, Bernie Sanders also really confounded political science views of, of what parties are and, and who governs them. And traditionally, there have kind of been two ways of looking at parties, right? Uh, on the one hand, folks have often coming from the Weberian tradition, have looked at poli as parties as creatures of politicians and agents of the state. That is, they organize government, 
They facilitate policymaking. They are fairly elite institutions and so on, right? This, this is perhaps most famously articulated by Weber's uh, student, Robert Michels, when he described the iron law of oligarchy, looking at, at parties like this, that parties insulate themselves in the state and they are effectively creatures of government. By contrast, there's another classical tradition rooted probably more coming out of the Marxian tradition that sees political parties as organizations rooted in civil society, right? That is, they are the, re they reflect the interest of social groups outside the state, such as classes, right? But it doesn't have to be classes, but the Marxian tradition would, would emphasize that. So in contrast to these two traditional ways of looking at parties, I try and kind of take a yes and approach. And I can say, I reconceptualize parties as what I call contentious institutions, recognizing that parties are simultaneously agents of the state and organizers of government, as well as organizations rooted in civil society, which serve as vehicles for social groups to try and achieve the goals that they want. So it's parties' role as intermediary institutions, right, as these bridge organizations between the state and civil society that, of course, makes democratic representation possible at all, in theory. But in reality, I argue that the relations between politicians on the one hand and groups on the other are much more likely to be contentious rather than these harmonious conduits through which people's interests and goals are projected uh, into the state. This is because parties dual nature as agents of government and agents of social groups make the location of party authority inherently and inescapably ambiguous. Uh, both, both groups and politicians can and often do lay claim to be the ones who truly govern the party. And so the question, to return to it, who governs parties, is one that I argue is, is perpetually unsettled. And this creates a kind of dynamic tension at the core of, of party politics. One of your sentences here in that introduction it reads as follows. It says, you theorize parties as institutional arenas in which politicians and party-oriented party groups make rival and often discordant claim to representational legitimacy, leadership authority, and control over party governance, essentially about who actually governs the party. Now, if that's a sentence that everyone on Twitter shouldn't have uh, tattooed on their foreheads, I don't know what is because we talk about parties on the kind of uh, pop left, the popular left, you know, uh, people talking online and in, in their political organizations, maybe less so that. But in the kind of uh, blog, it's what <laughs> used to be called the blog. Jesus, Adam, I just dated myself. There's no blogosphere anymore. That's not a thing. The, po the podcast sphere, <laughs> if you will. Uh, we talk about parties as quite monolithic. In institutions, organizations run by the likes of Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or um, Mitch McConnell even, you know, which and there's some truth to that, of course, in terms of when he ran the Senate. But but there's always truth and it always gives lie to to this idea as the party as a monolith. And you, you try to trace how these claims to legitimacy and authority are, off, are almost necessarily discordant because there's always somewhere else to look to for claims to authority. Right. Insurgent ranks in, in, in the party uh, legislators can point to a base that they truly answer to. Right. 
instead of, say, Nancy Pelosi, for example. Mm -hmm. Others can look to the donors that stuff their pockets. So there is no real center of authority, and this makes parties in the American context a lot more dynamic and a lot more just interesting, I think, than the contemporary left gives it credit. Now, with that being said, political parties do and have changed over the years. And you look at the role of what you call the political entrepreneur, which is like a dirty word. I feel like I have to spit every time it comes out of my mouth, but it's a really fascinating way to look at it. It's certainly a fascinating, I mean, you're going to get a lot of citations out of that, my friend. Up, up, and away for your career. Bravo. I always love it when a, a scholar that I love, uh, you know, comes up with a nice piece of jargon because I'm like, fuck yeah, yeah, get those citations. Uh, talk talk to us about political entrepreneur. What is that? What does that mean to you? Well, unfortunately, I can't take credit for- That's not yours. Uh, okay. Not mine. But the, the political entrepreneur is a concept that has come to have increasing currency in at least political science. I can't speak for, for other disciplines. And at least, I mean, various people define it in different ways. My favorite is actually from a fairly, fairly, I don't want to say dated book. It's not dated, but an older text, um, an excellent book uh, called The Contested City by John Mollenkopf. And Malenkoff def defines, and I agree with his definition, a very elegant definition, that the political po entrepreneur is the political agent that changes the rules in order to win the game. And, and, and you know, it's fairly abstract, but it also makes the concept travel pretty well. And so True. to come back to this theory of uh, political parties as being contentious institutions, which in this book, I, I apply principally to understanding the evolution of, of the Democratic Party, though uh, there's no reason that this concept doesn't also not only capture what's going on in the Republican Party in terms of its internal dynamics of, of contention, but I would argue that it probably applies to all parties. It is probably a little bit more exacerbated in tighter two-party systems where um, would-be third-party supporters have little choice but to channel their efforts into an existing party. But honestly, I, I, I arrived at the concept from a careful reading of Panitch and Lee's book on the British Labour Party, when I noticed that that the, the, the new left insurgency inside the Labour Party, if you boiled their claims down to why they wanted Labour Party, the Parliamentary Labour Party, to do what they wanted, it was that they claimed they were the true authority of, of the party, right? That the party derived its legitimacy from its members and therefore is and should be a small d democratic organization. So I, I think, I think, I think the contentious institutions perspective, I think might explain a lot about parties, but I'm not a comparativist and I don't want to speak about contexts in which I'm unfamiliar. So. Political entrepreneurs are those who do not take the basic game of politics as settled. Uh, uh, that is, that they're looking to press the boundaries, uh, exploit ambiguity, uh, exploit mm -hmm. moments of crisis in which they can sort of reset the terms of political contestation. Now, of course, at the extreme, we can point out that a figure like Donald Trump is a almost ingenious political entrepreneur in his willingness to smash things apart. On the other hand, Mitch McConnell would probably be a fairly uh, entrepreneurial political agent in his willingness to break norms and push the Senate to function 
in extremely counter-majoritarian ways. But in, in terms of the evolution of the Democratic Party, I focus on a fairly small set of actors who emerge from the social movement mobilizations in, in the late 60s, early 70s, but really intervene at a moment of systemic crisis, not just for the Democratic Party, but for the entire New Deal order that that mm. party had been overseeing for the previous 30 years. And in that particular moment of crisis, when the party's legitimacy was very low, when its leadership uh, and its leadership selection mechanisms were under challenge, these party entrepreneurs were able to push through major and lasting and very meaningful structural transformations to how that party worked. So my follow-up question here is, you know, forces me, it gives cause to reflect on the progress that we've made as a left over the past few years in this country, because I would have had to maybe, I would have sort of <laughs> posed a tongue-in-cheek question about how obviously the New Deal was racist because it includes segregationists and the Democratic Party coalition. So with that being said, universal policies are therefore racist and problematic, but we don't have to do that anymore. And thank, well, mostly don't have to do that anymore. I hope the left doesn't swing back in that silly direction. But as you rightly point out in this book, the Democratic Party coalition that gave us, bestowed unto us the New Deal uh, as a result of a lot of, you know, a lot of conflict and struggle in civil society was a fraught party. If that wasn't enough, you know, grist for the uh, scholarly mill or whatever, for, for your mind to think through parties as contentious institutions, I don't know what it is. You've got the likes of, you know, kind of... um. <laughs> quasi-American Marxists or American socialists, you know, um, working passionately inside the same party as, uh, you know, hardcore, dis just vile, disgusting segregationists. Contextualize that Democratic Party in the New Deal as kind of the, because you operate, that operates kind of as a, a starting point here to discuss what comes of that in its, in its unraveling and in its, its challenges uh, from these political entrepreneurs and these sort of more advocacy-oriented political actors. Yeah, you know, it, looking back on it from today's perspective, it's almost hard to, I mean, it is, it's, it's nearly impossible to believe that the New Deal coalition even existed, let alone was one of the longest lasting political coalitions in in certainly the 20th century and arguably all of American history. So this coalition constructed through the 1930s, consolidated in the 1940s and and flying apart <laughs> by its centrifugal forces uh, by mm -hmm. the uh, mid to late 60s, uh, really stood on three legs. On the one hand, of course, uh, we have what you might call the labor liberals, that is the convergence of progressive liberals, New Deal administrators, readers of The Nation magazine, <laughs> uh, those types, um, rooted mostly in, uh, um, of course, the North, uh, the Northeast, um, industrial mm -hmm. Midwest, uh, coming together with the insurgent uh, labor movement, especially the, the CIO and other uh, supportive labor organizations at the time. In addition to the labor liberals, which we know were responsible primarily for, for the intellectual drive uh, of, of, uh, and the scope of the New Deal uh, programs, we also had uh, the kind of big city democratic machines, right? The things, the things run in these top-down, heavy-handed, mostly non-ideological vote-gathering machines, but by today's standards, extremely corrupt 
but they were organizations that populated, you know, cities like, uh, we know, you know, Tammany Hall in New York. We have the, um, the famous Chicago machine under Mayor Richard Daley. And these were, these were local Democratic Party machines that, that effectively monopolized state government and used a lot of the resources that you get from running state government to curry support among voters. And they built armies of activists and rewarded their work for the party with jobs, city paychecks, favors, sometimes even just shots of whiskey, <laughs> Christmas turkeys, uh, those kinds of things. And then third and- I'd vote for a Christmas turkey. I mean, let's not, you know, let's not knock that. Don't knock it till you try it, I'm saying. Yeah, you know, I mean, if, 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 we, if we distributed <laughs> alcohol- uh, At least they're getting something, yeah. man. I had to, I had to pull the, the trigger for Abigail Spanberger, for fuck's sake. Oh, I mean, you know, I'd take a Christmas turkey for that, you know, because I got nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got a kick in the teeth is what I got, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know I think it it would reasonably drive up voter participation again. Um, <laughs> uh, and and then third and probably most significantly um, is the Democratic Party uh, uh, in the former states, uh, or I should say the states of the former Confederacy, um, were what I call Democratic Party states. And the reason I call them that is um, yes, the South had state Democratic parties. But these parties had so effectively driven out any uh, partisan competitors in the years during, uh, I should say the years after Reconstruction and in the rise of Jim Crow, um, that these were, as as uh, political scientist Robert Mickey calls them, these were effectively enclaves of authoritarian rule. Um, there was no two-party competition in the South. Um, uh, there was, of course, uh, widespread disenfranchisement of uh, voters of color and even poor white voters, uh, especially when they were inclined to vote for uh, the populist party. Um, and there was really no separation between the Democratic parties of the South and the Southern states. Um, and so by that definition, they are not little Soviet unions, but they are not that far off. Um, uh, the interests of the state and the interests of the party had completely fused. So altogether, urban machines, labor liberals, and Southern party states, they configured the democratic coalition that was underpinning the New Deal. Really fascinating stuff. I mean, we can't talk about the the authoritarianism in in the post-Civil War post-Reconstruction era in the South enough. I mean, that's just not, people just don't really understand the the breadth and depth of that. I've done some archival research on that. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing. And, you know, and you can't understand, it's somewhat tangential, but not at all, actually, in terms of the discussion we're about to launch into. You can't understand the development of the capacities of the American federal system, i.e. not what we know as the American state, you can't understand the development of the American state without understanding how the sort of uh, how how DC viewed that sort of uh, party state system in the former Confederate states as a problem, <laughs> as something as as a, as a problem that needed to be desperately needed to be solved. Yeah, a variety of mechanisms and, and, and very various imperfect mechanisms, of course, with the first defeat being you know the the, the failed. Uh, uh, efforts at reconstruction. And so, yeah, I mean, this is, this looms 
large in, in the discussion we're about to have. So anybody who looks and again, you know, I, I sort of lampooned it at the outset. Fortunately, we don't have to have these conversations anymore because Bernie Sanders popularized the notion of universal policies such that only the most sycophantic, like, you know, st- hashtag still with her types characterize uh, universal policies as inherently racist. I hope. I hope that's where we are today. I, I could be wrong. Um, we could swing wildly back in the other direction. But yeah, you, you have to understand the authoritarian nature of, of, of the Confederate states in order to conceptualize this thing. How did that play for you? Yeah, I think what is really critical here, and, and for people who have not looked at this book, uh, Robert Mickey's amazing and large, but amazingly pathbreaking book, Paths Out of Dixie, where he, uh, drawing on the work of other scholars, but was a bit of ahead of the game uh, in terms of reconceptualizing how um, how we think of the Southern states between the end of Reconstruction and the victories of the civil rights movement, how we think about American democratization, which actually, according to Mickey, while it was precocious in that it began with enfranchising white propertyless men very early, it was exceptionally late in consolidating that democratization, which you could argue kind of came just to our minimal formal definition of what democracy means, uh, didn't come to consolidate that regime until 1972. And then, of course, now, almost unbelievably, in the last four years, the mainstream position in political science has become that democratization in the United States is under a major threat. So that tangent aside, yeah, the, the power of the authoritarian Jim Crow states in the formation of, of the New Deal can really not be uh, underestimated. It wasn't simply that, of course, New Deal liberals had to get the votes they needed right, to get New Deal legislation through Congress. It was also the fact that Congress was organized according to seniority, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything mandated by the Constitution. It was a norm of how Congress organized its internal business. And if you organize by seniority and you have, you have representatives from the former Confederacy accumulating lengths of service that are astronomical because there are no other parties that can challenge these folks in the Southern states. Well, then that means all the committee chairs are going to be, or at least many, a disproportionate number of committee chairs, which control what issues are, are deliberated on, when they, when meetings and hearings are scheduled, what bills can even reach the floor prior to a vote then it means a disproportionate number of those committee chairs are going to be in the hands of Southern segregationists, which they were. Right. And you've got these old bags of bones who go by like who uh, go by colonel, even though they never served in the military, but they probably carried a sidearm on a plantation in like the 1880s, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like but, yeah. hobbling through hobbling through the halls of of Congress, you know, in the 1920s and 30s at like 90 couple years old, you know, occupying the seats in these uh, key committees. That's the thing. Yeah, it's a big deal. Absolutely. There was one um, chairman of the rules committee. His name escapes me at the moment who used to brag that he would have his tailor line his suit jacket with extra pockets so that he could pocket, meaning not yeah. not deliberate out the civil rights bills that were being introduced into Congress. And the Rules Committee decides um, which bills are going to reach the floor for a House vote. So with the potential, with their collective hand on the lever to either shut down or permit various New Deal legislative acts from becoming law, the Southern Jim Crow 
Democrats were able to basically filter the entire New Deal through the matrix that they had erected to protect the racial order over which they governed. Uh, so this this meant many things did become law that that had very significant and wide wide ranging effects on mm-hmm. transforming American politics in the long run. But as as people uh, at this point know fairly well, there were exceptions made about what kind of workers could be excluded from receiving Social Security uh, benefits. Right. There were exclusions uh, as to as to who could who could be covered by fair employment standards. Uh, let's let's dive into that. Let's not uh, kind of get, uh, beat around the bush. The the a lot of the contemporary scholarship on this emphasizes, in my estimation, overemphasizes the racial nature of this. Now, it was absolutely because of race. I'm not saying it wasn't because of race. These guys were fucking monsters. I mean, just just appalling beasts of of like stains on American history in terms of their racism. But that being said, uh, you know, as a lot of scholars have pointed out, this was also a, a form of it was absolutely white supremacist uh, rule, but it was white supremacist class rule. Insofar as uh, uh, even larger numbers of poor whites were disenfranchised in a number of ways out, uh, they were pushed out of this uh, emerging social welfare state by this planter, essentially planter class. You know, exclusions to Social Security and, and all the rest of it. What is your take on that? You know, I mean, this is this is a contentious uh, topic, but it's one I think that's been given short shrift by the kind of what other guests of my show, like Toure Reed and others, have called race reductionism. Um, which doesn't give us a kind of full, you know, a full picture of the complexity of the class rule nature of white supremacy, right? Which is, which is like, you know, really important, I think, because <laughs> that's yeah. what we're up against today in a lot of parts of the country. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, I think the appropriate way is to see race and class as being tightly intertwined. We could even bring gender into this because, of course, white supremacy had an enormous patriarchal component to it. Um, sure. But in terms of our discussion here about, about the New Deal, the Jim Crow racial order is, of course, simultaneously a political economy. Uh, this was a region of the United States, a regional economy geared to very labor-intensive industries, whether that was textiles in, in the fairly small, underdeveloped uh, industrial sector in the southern states uh, during the 1930s, um, or or more famously, um, the very labor-intensive agricultural uh, sector. And these were mostly cash crops. They were mostly geared towards uh, export. And so the wage differential, the low-wage economy, was the basis uh, of that regional political economy. So white supremacy and Jim Crow and, and the authoritarian nature of these states uh, became something of a development strategy uh, for, for the southern region. Anything like uh, equalizing wages across a national labor market um, would be anathema to uh, their development strategy. And we have to remember, it's interesting, the, the, the Southern Democrats in Congress go through a bit of an interesting evolution through the course of the New Deal. They are eager New Dealers in the first several years, that what we call the first New Deal and the second New Deal. Very supportive of Roosevelt. I, they passed the Wagner Act, giving the right of, of unions to uh, for collective bargaining, almost on a, I believe, on a voice vote. It, it's not even reported yeah. who voted for what. 
That might have been because the South suspected that the Supreme, wrongly suspected that the Supreme Court would strike it down. But the point is, after 1937-38, the South becomes viciously opposed to progressing the New Deal. And that, coming back to the main point here, is that they began to more deeply understand and associate that New Deal change, New Deal changes, legislative changes that were going to empower labor would eventually threaten and undermine the racial order over which they were trying to govern in the South. No doubt. No doubt. I think, you know, this is a historical gloss that you would never venture as a, as a respectable academic, but I'm a podcaster, so I'll do it. It's, uh, you know, you could say that the, the, the just, just the, just arrogance of the planter class was on full display in the early 1930s. This is my read on it in the early 1930s by, by, you know, these, um, segregationist autocrats in the Democrat, Southern democratic party voting for the Wagner act and so on and so forth, enthusiastically bringing on, you know, because they also saw this as a gravy train, right? I mean, they, they controlled, as we talked about, they controlled these, uh, committee seats and any movement to uh, use the federal government to start, you know, uh, to to get that money, get those, you know, those printing presses, those money presses started uh, whirring, you know, but money press go burr, I think is what the Twitter meme is these days. And, and that's what they heard. They heard the burr and they knew that they controlled, they had their hands on the levers and, and these, this gravy train would just fatten their pockets, the pockets of their supporters and, and, and those of the planter class. And so the arrogance was on full display. They knew that this would heighten union uh, participation in the North, but they had such a white knuckled grip on society, <laughs> the economy, the state and society in the South that they didn't fear it. And it seems like by the time the second new deal comes around, they started to get an idea. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like these dominoes are going to start falling. You know, these uppity black workers, you know, who have been under my thumb since slavery are starting to get the idea that this guy Roosevelt is is speaking for them. Talk about that transformation for us. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, there were the way I might put it. I was going to say, I don't ask you to co-sign that characterization. It's pretty, it's pretty crass, but how would you, how would you uh, rewrite that? Well, I think you're onto something there. The way I would put it is, is Southern, um, Southern representatives were in a, a bit of a difficult dilemma because as you say, um, they were quite eager for uh, redirecting federal largesse towards their home districts and their states. Um, and you know, we have to admit that part of that was for a very good reason is the South was suffering terribly in the depression. Um, Their developmental model was just complete garbage. It could not hold up. I mean, it was uh, dated and they all knew it. Yeah. And and, I mean, poverty was already uh, disproportionately high in the region um, uh, among, among uh, white and black Southerners uh, prior to the depression. And then of course um, a cash crop, economy that's geared towards export um, is going to suffer horrifically once you have a market crash to the extent that that 1929 introduced. So many of those Roosevelt identified, right, as the ill-clad, the ill-housed, and the ill-nourished uh, were in the South. And, and so the South required a lot of uh, assistance. At the same time, many Southerners were happy to deliver paved roads and electricity to their constituents, which had not had many of those things before. So the Southerners were engaged in 
effectively trying to square the circle. They were trying to modernize their region in certain ways while maintaining an iron-tight grip on the racial and economic order. That ultimately proved to be an impossible formula to pull off, not just structurally, but because many of the changes that did happen did encourage the mobilization of the civil rights movement uh, several decades after. And and then, of course, the also, uh, I think something you, you mentioned is the Southerners were simply looking at what was happening outside their region. They, they began to understand that by empowering labor as a key force within the New Deal coalition, and it was we have to we have to remember the CIO and within their alliance with the NAACP and many other civil rights organizations that were pushing liberals, economic liberals, to consider race and civil rights as a key part of, of their programmatic agenda. The Southerners simply began to understand that the unions are a threat. The unions will not confine themselves to the Northeast or the industrial Midwest. They will move south. Right. And the only way we know that you organize the South, as the CIO tried and failed to do with Operation Dixie after the Second World War, the only way you will organize the South is on a biracial basis. And so they began to understand that that the racial and class dynamics that were coming, that were becoming clear and becoming empowered through the New Deal were a mortal threat uh, to the Jim Crow order. Explain this to me. This I've studied this history quite a bit. You know, you know, sort of at, at the graduate level, never not as like you know, in terms of the way you are. No one's ever held me accountable. That's the important part, Adam. Never see this is the best part about being a pot. No one holds you accountable for shit. Uh, <laughs> so I can say whatever I want. It's fantastic. But you should try it. Uh, but no. Wait, so explain to me the thing that's never really quite. You know. So why were they together? This is the part I think that's just. It's. it's I mean, it's unthinkable for most just kind of uh, everyday political kind of uh, nerds, political geeks out there, weirdos like us who spend entirely too much time thinking about politics. Why were they in the same party? I mean, of course, you know, historical accident has a lot to do with this, but that's the part that's so contentious. And maybe we can, you can answer that question in in the context of getting back to the more theoretical piece that I think drives your book in each subsequent chapter, which is that Scholars have um, unfortunately characterized this. This is kind of like an epistemological, bigger picture kind of framing issue that I love when when you um, when you when you get at the underlying problems with the way that scholars have framed issues, which has prevented them from seeing this. Right? That's really fascinating to me, and that's what you've done here. Scholars have in the past understood these party reformers to be anti-party, to be anti-party. Whereas in reality, what you're just, what you're finding is actually that's not the, they don't no one ever frames themselves that way. As I'm here to fuck up the Democratic Party, join me, right? No, that's not how it's done. It's by appealing to the true nature of the party and and its constituents and its movements and its causes that these political entrepreneurs remake the system by also bucking the system, right? And so, um, so how what held that party together in the midst? of this kind of remaking of, of the party that happened under Roosevelt? Yeah, well, let's, let's begin with first, how was it that the New Deal came to encompass the most liberal and the most conservative elements yes. of American society, society in the same party? 
well put from <laughs> from our perspective in you know the age of polarization where liberal and democrat has become synonymous and conservative and republican has also become synonymous it's very hard to conceptualize to even think about what it meant to have a party with a with a really liberal wing and a and 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 a really conservative wing um, so it does have a lot to do with historical accident. Again, um, the Democratic Party was primarily a Southern party, uh, going all the way back really to Jefferson and his vision of, uh, uh, he called his party um, during, during his days, the Republican Party, but it traces its lineage to the modern Democratic Party. Um, this was going to be a party of, of agrarian, small producers, small government, you know, uh, states' rights kind of government, as opposed to the Hamiltonian um, statist federal, <laughs> the Federalist uh, Party that was going to use the power of the federal government to um, to to industrialize uh, the United States. To tell these uh, to tell these virtuous planners that they can't sleep with their uh, their chattel. Uh, you know, that's how dare them. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's got to go back to slavery somewhere, doesn't it? In some in some places, of course. And, yeah, and most significantly, um, in terms of explaining the the historical accident, really, of uh, the Democratic Party containing the left and the right, if you will, uh, in the 1930s, is it really comes back to the outcome of uh, the Civil War and the failure of Reconstruction. Uh, mm -hmm. The Party of Lincoln, the Republican Party, had overseen uh, the military occupation. Uh, and the enfranchisement of, uh, uh, of free persons uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. But once the disenfranchisement of former Confederates was lifted and uh, Southern states were able to redeem themselves, as they called it, and the white supremacist movement um, using an array of activities, uh, including systematic fraud, voter intimidation, vigilante violence, used the state democratic parties as the vehicles for organizing those authoritarian enclaves uh, we mm -hmm. were talking about before that ruled over Jim Crow. So, you know, you look at, let's say, 1924, 1928. These are uh, landslide losses uh, for the Democratic Party in the U.S. presidential elections. Um, they're basically just holding on to the South. Uh, the South is contributing some 90% of the electoral college votes that Democratic candidates are getting in the 20s. Along comes, of course, the massive crisis, uh, the entire Republican regime, the Republican order that they had been overseeing since the end of the Civil War comes spiraling apart. And Roosevelt wins several times over in massive landslides. Now, the, the Southern role in delivering electoral college votes is only about 20, 25, 30% rather than 90%. So it, it, so it was, it was a dramatic expansion of the Democratic electorate, um, a massive conversion of many former Republican voters, such as African Americans outside the South into the Democratic column, the mobilization of working classes through the CIO to be voting for Roosevelt. And so we have this enormous democratic coalition, a, a, a nationwide coalition that has effectively stitched onto itself this Southern enclave that, of course, there's no Republican opposition in those Southern states. So that's how we get this strange bedfellow marriage between labor liberals, the urban machines, uh, and the one-party democratic South. Now, this, this coalition, of course, is so frustrating for labor liberals. 
for decade after decade through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, even into the early 60s, um, their efforts to try to expand labor organizing, their efforts to try and win universal health insurance, their efforts to pass a, a full employment bill after the Second World War, their efforts, especially their efforts to advance civil rights for African-Americans are continually strangled, right? Not by the opposing party, but by members of their own party, often voting in, in a coalition uh, with many conservative Republicans. And so one of the things that nascent party reformers begin to ask about is how is it that a party at the national level that is dedicated to labor liberalism and racial liberalism is unable to make its Southern affiliates kind of toe the party line. And uh, American political parties, even today, but especially back then, were some of the most decentralized institutions that you'd find uh, in the democratic world. Really, rather than having a national Democratic Party. There were 50 Democratic parties, right? One for each state uh, and, and then their local affiliates. Simply put, American political parties, uh, national political parties, did not have the capacity or the authority to tell their state parties what to do. And so in their efforts to try and promote a more expansive programmatic liberalism, both class or economic-based and racially-based, who would become the party reformers later, basically saw that the party structure of the Democratic Party was one of the foremost obstacles for them getting what they wanted. And we saw through the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, we saw repeated efforts to challenge the South in terms of you need to be towing the national party line. And each of those efforts was ultimately defeated. What was really required is a major change in the context. And that was finally delivered. The kind of contingency of this moment that was finally delivered in the party crisis of 1968. And then the party reformers had the window of opportunity that they had been looking for for decades, really. Let's look at this crisis, this impasse through the lens of, say, a, a black labor radical, but but also someone who is very comfortable and, and uh Inside the party and not, I wouldn't say comfortable as a stretch. Okay. But a Philip Randolph, right? Someone who let's put it, not to put it lightly, ate a lot of shit for his participation, his, his, his continued willingness to operate inside and outside the Democratic party. And, you know, you've got, uh, what is it? Uh, jokers to the left or jokers to the left of you, virulent racist to the right. No, not on the political spectrum, of course, but, uh, you know, in your, within your own party. You have these disgusting, vile segregationists, authoritarians. Outside your party, of course, you have uh, class enemies and, and the kind of industrialists and the finance, the financiers uh, in, the, in the, Repub the then Republican Party, which, by the way, they're now they're now Democrats, by the way. So we ourselves are not in too far of a, you know, I mean, you know, I, let's let's take a step back and not paint this as something that's just incredibly exotic. Right to to have, and I know you would never do such a thing because your current work, uh, your work on the contemporary nature of the Democratic Party really emphasizes this. But you know, for those listeners out there who are like, "Wow, I can't imagine such a fractured, you know, such a 
such an odd group of bedfellows. Like, well, look no further than today. You've got Silicon Valley, you've got uh, Wall Street, and you've got uh, Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and the movement for Medicare for all, uh, you know, under the same umbrella and the same party. So we're not too far off aside from the people who were lynching black and white workers who bucked their autocratic order in the South. But I digress. Imagine being a black labor radical. You've got enemies inside your party, inside your coalition, I should say. You've got enemies, of course, outside your party. What else is there to do but to build the capacities inside the party such that you can try to cleanse it of these virulent assholes in the South? So how is that? did that contextualize the frustration that led to the kind of more activist, advocacy-oriented party that you write about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there's, a, there's a historical episode that really illustrates this frustration quite well. And, and your listeners probably have heard of it or are familiar with it before. And this is after Freedom Summer and the organization of voter registration drives in uh, Mississippi, through the summer of 1964, there was the effort of what was called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, led by Bob Moses, Fannie Lou Hamer, and many other very famous uh, civil rights advocates and, and activists. And what they did is they launched a rival party organization compared to what we might call the Mississippi Regulars, right? The regular party in Mississippi, of course, is a lily white segregationist party. They don't allow black people to, to participate, nor do they even allow liberals to participate, right? It's, it's, they see them as northern, you know, interlopers, carpetbaggers, rabble rousers, that kind of thing. So both delegations, the regular Mississippi Party and the Freedom Democrats, both show up in Atlantic City for Lyndon Johnson's coronation, his official first, right, his first nomination for the presidency because of course he had, he had only been in office a year uh, since Kennedy's assassination. Johnson had only weeks prior signed the famous Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? That had been, that had, that had overcome the Southern filibuster and finally clearly wedded the national leadership of the Democratic Party to the civil rights movement. So the Mississippi Freedom Democrats feel like they've got a lot of leverage, right? They've got the moral suasion on their side to show up and demand that they be seated, right, as an integrated delegation. Of course, to cast all their votes for Lyndon Johnson, they're not contesting his nomination. But mm. They want to be recognized symbolically as the true representatives of Mississippi rather than the Lily White regular party. This creates a huge stir. Johnson is furious. He doesn't want anything to go wrong. He is nervous, of course, that if he seats the integrated coalition, that the rest of the South will bolt. They will walk out of the convention. They will boycott the election and Johnson will lose the South as he effectively does, remember, to Barry Goldwater, who had voted against the Civil Rights Act. There is a really unsatisfying compromise that is made. The Freedom Democrats are furious. They're offered two token seats, one of which has to go to a white member of their integrated uh, delegation. So the Mississippi Freedom Democrats are furious. This, this kind of signals a growing divide within the civil rights movement over what can be had from allying with uh, the Democratic Party. That's, mm -hmm. that's another conversation we can have. But what's critical 
is that the convention passes a resolution, which at the time no one really thought much about, just saying, look, in the future, state parties are not going to be able to discriminate on the basis of race, right? Everyone is going to be allowed to participate in party affairs. Fast forward four years from now, and yes, there's another Mississippi challenge that is successful and the integrated coalition is set, but there are numerous other credentials challenges, right, that are coming from anti-war activists that are claiming that their support for the insurgent candidates, uh, Robert Kennedy and, and uh, Eugene McCarthy, are subject to, quote unquote, discrimination and exclusion. So this creates huge upheaval inside the Democratic Party as the party is not only being split and torn by the civil rights movement, but is simultaneously being challenged by the anti-war movement, the Democratic Party, and most of its, its affiliates, including the labor leadership, being pretty deeply wedded to the Cold War foreign policy that had been the framework of all foreign policy really since the, since the late 1940s. So this lays a really kind of um, fractious groundwork for what would what would take place in the 1960s. Let's narrate this briefly, because I'd really like to spend some time, may you say briefly, this is really the coup de grace of your book. I mean, you're looking at how this really illustrates the complexities and the transformations inside the party up through Obama. But um, let's kind of work through this challenge and the kind of party that it produced, which is now sort of setting the stage for a for similar kinds of challenges? Because that seems, I, mean, I want to sort of foreground the conclusion for people here, kind of give people a hint of where we're headed because we're almost an hour in. I want people to hang on here because there's a big payoff at the end here, you know, which it seems to be the, what you're suggesting is that there was a, there's a certain kind of um, hollowed out nature to the party. You were use the word hollow in many places that was ripe for this kind of, <laughs> political entrepreneurialism to, to, for someone to come in and redefine, to embody that space and then claim it as for that for themselves and then rewrite the rules of, of the party going forward. You seem to seem to suggest that we're in a possibly in a similar circumstance today. So avoiding some of the pitfalls and traps and contradictions of, of that moment and, and what we do in the next decade or two seems to be critical. So let's narrate uh, this, this 60s crisis for the audience here. Sure. And let me begin with the conclusion too. I'll do that and, and, then, I, and then I'll take us back. So yeah, please. essentially what I'm trying to argue in my book is that because of the way a particular conflict between what we could call reformers and counter-reformers, because of the way that conflict plays out in the decade or so after the 1968 crisis, the Democratic Party becomes something I call an advocacy party. That is the, the, the very nature and form of how the Democratic Party works changes fundamentally. And I'll explain the ways in which, why it turns out the way it does. But what that means by advocacy party is that the modern Democratic Party, as we know it, has come to increasingly rely for its mobilizing capacity and its, and its institutional legitimacy on a bunch of non-party groups and actors. These are social movements. These are the nonprofit universe. Uh, you know, we can throw MSNBC in there. There, in a sense, there is this broad constellation 
of groups that are formally not part of the party at all, but come to play a critical role, again, not just in, in giving Democrats the resources that parties used to monopolize but no longer monopolize, efforts with get out the vote, voter contact lists, donations, campaign resources, obviously. Newspapers, by the way, going even further back, right? Newspapers were often party organs. Now they're corporate organs. (laughs) Absolutely. But actually, we would probably throw in today podcasts. I think you could probably, you know, not neatly, but again, that's why I kind of prefer the word constellation. Podcasts circulate in a certain partisan constellation. I mean, this podcast is obviously not at the core of the Democratic Party. I, right. You wouldn't want to situate yourself there. I don't know. Some some might disagree. Some of my uh, strongest haters might disagree. But the wine moms that say Huff Post's uh, Dan Marin's uh, often pointed to in their 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 real crucial nature of 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 how they emphasize uh, how they influence the uh, the primary process. These wine moms are are absolutely plugged into that podcast kind of uh, sure. independent media sphere. Yeah, you know, Pod Save America. You know those folks. big. Big friends of the pod over there and the wine mom uh, kind of activist oriented uh, groups for sure. Exactly. And then, of course, we have um, Vox, Politico, just as we have Fox on one si- on the other side, National Review, you know, deep, weird QAnon, Reddit threads, parlor and, and, and so on. Right. So the Democrats have become an advocacy party where they have come to ne- necessarily be dependent on the resources and the legitimacy that these wider, what I just in general call advocates, can give them. At the same time, though, I want to emphasize that the what advocates, what groups expect is that the party will then deliver on the goods that they want. And those, again, the, that could be ideological stuff. Probably a lot of podcasts aren't expecting, <laughs> podcast hosts aren't necessarily expecting jobs, right? But they have ideological goals, right? They're part of these broader movements. They want to- Patreon, Patreon finance reform. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so we could call this, uh, some people have called this ideological patronage. Others have called Mm -hmm. this, uh, they just want to see policy victories. They want to see major changes. Well, they're linked into a a network of clout, which is like not nothing, right? And even just being able to have these policymakers and staffers and even politicians themselves show up on their platforms gives them a lot of legitimacy and therefore an audience and therefore extends their success. And the, man, there's, there, are, there are a couple of dissertations here, folks, if there are any grad students out there looking to write one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so broadly speaking, to, to sort of sum it up, parties have become more dependent on these groups. And especially since the late 60s, early 70s, um, with what we kind of sometimes dub the advocacy explosion, there are more and more of these groups that are able to supply what parties need. So this has developed, I, I think, into a, a new kind of party organizationally. The parties uh, uh, are hollowed out, right, which is a term actually I borrow from two other political scientists. But what has filled that hollow space is is broadly what I would consider advocacy. And mm-hmm. so I argue that this result, this present state of affairs is the result of the outcome of a very contentious struggle inside the Democratic Party that happened after 1968. And we can sort of unpack this in a few different ways, but simply put, the party reformers, 
mostly liberal-minded folks, had been looking for an opportunity to, again, kind of modernize the party structure, right? To them, this old states' rights party structure of decentralization, that was responsible for this frustrating coalition where you could have labor liberals, the closest to national power they've ever been, while simultaneously being frustrated over and over again by the Southern conservatives that are in the same party. You can add on top of that division by 1968 in particular, the Democratic Party was also, because it was the party of the Cold War, more so than the Republican Party was, it was also a party of of military hawks and anti-war doves. Like, so this was a second kind of cross pressure that was being applied in the same coalition. Mm-hmm. And you see this reflected and also originating both kind of dialectically so in the labor movement, right? Exactly, right. Uh, it was one of the reasons why the anti-war movement had major, major problems with the labor leaders as kind of the the brokers, you know, the interest brokers inside the Democratic Party is they is is, you know, while you had the Walter Ruthers of the world who who basically could keep the UAW in a neutral position on the war for fear of, you know, you don't want to cross Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> you know, he he's the difference between getting what you want and getting nothing. Uh, all the way over to like passionate, very culturally conservative cold warriors like um, George Meany, who was uh, the president of the AFL-CIO. So in 1968, this basically all boils to the surface and it explodes. This is the famous, or I maybe should say infamous Chicago convention of the Democratic Party, inundated by police violence, uh, riots through the city of Chicago. There is pretty much just as much chaos going on inside the convention, which we don't remember quite uh, as well. Eugene McCarthy, Senators Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy had ran in primaries to try and steal the nomination away from Lyndon Johnson, who did actually uh, forfeit his, uh, uh, his incumbency, or his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was a classic you know, and passionate labor liberal of the New Deal era, but a firm cold warrior and completely unwilling to break with Johnson on the Vietnam policy. But of course, Humphrey had not contested a single primary, which were non-binding back then. There was only about 17 of them, and they uh, distributed only about, I would say, one third of the total delegates. So they were ineffective instruments through which you could influence the nomination. The anger of the nomination being handed on the first vote to Hubert Humphrey, as well as the anger, of course, and frustration that came with Kennedy's assassination only a month or two prior, explodes inside the the convention. There's ac- there's literally violence on the floor of the uh, of the convention. There's major acrimony in all the committees. So to try and resolve this, once again, <laughs> we see the solution that came up four years before proffered once more. And as a sop to the radical left or, or to the, to, to, to the anti-warriors in particular, a can, a very overlooked convention resolution is passed that says the, the delegate selection mechanisms, the primary system, the nomination system will be studied by a committee, by a special commission, and they will offer some recommendations about changes to be made ahead of the 1972 convention. That closes this particular episode. The uh, Hubert Humphrey goes on to lose, of course, to Nixon um, by 0.1 percentage points in the popular vote. 
very close election. But critically, and, and, and I'll just pause here for a second, critically, this opens up the window of opportunity for reformers. On the one hand, they have a they have a majoritarian party, the party of the New Deal, the Democratic Party, that is clearly in major disarray. And they have a special commission that is going to be, in a sense, rewriting the rules of the party. And so these political entrepreneurs, activists from the civil rights movement, the nascent feminist movement, the student movement, as well as pretty, we got to say, very reform-minded labor liberals from within the party, right, uh, sitting office holders, seize on this commission as the vehicle through which they are going to transform the party. Really fascinating stuff. I can see how you looked at uh, the Labor Party for um, for inspiration here, at least for the structural aspects of kind of looking at the seeds for future changes within the party. Seeds that the American left often kind of scoffs at, like at best, right? We scoff at as kind of, you know, half-baked, half-assed, whatever, um, conciliatory, capitulation, capitulationary, whatever, capitulationist measures to quell left militancy inside the party. And yet, and, and, and they are that, they are that to an extent. And yet, though, there's always an and yet, they lead to other capacities. They provide capacities for future episodes, Narrate that in 72 for us. Yeah, that, and this is abundantly clear. When you go back and you look at the internal memos uh, in 68, members of the party are saying just what you're saying. We need something to placate this conflict, right? The, the, these anti-warriors, these civil rights activists, they all have a point, sure. But all we want to do is get to a smooth nomination and win the White House, right? So they said, let's, let's just punt this. Let's kick this down the road with this commission, right? They didn't expect anything to come of the commission. Most people thought they would issue some, you know, non-binding recommendations about this and that. Instead, really, much to the, you know, to completely unexpectedly, the activists are able to turn this vehicle into an authority on party structure. Now, there's complicated reasons for that. Again, a lot is contingent. A lot it has to do with kind of crafting the narrative, diagnosing what ails the Democratic Party as um, inadequate representation, a lack of internal party democracy, and basically the, the fact that opponents of what the reformers were proposing to do, the opponents had nothing better to offer. Like, I mean, in the ashes of the 1968 party crisis, how could anyone defend the old ways anymore? So reform was going to happen. And it was a question of on whose terms it would happen. What are called, what, what, what I kind of call and what were called at the time, the new politics movement, new politics reformers. Again, all those members of the kind of quote unquote new social movements of the 1960s. But I don't want to, I don't want to overlook the fact that actually the, the United Auto Workers in particular were really involved with this process. The rising through the 1960s, the rising public sector unions, AFSCME, they were all on board, right, with reforming these things. So it was new social, it was this, it was a coalition of a lot of new social movements plus uh, labor liberals. And they saw this as the opportunity to make major changes, to basically transform the party, to rid it of these problems about Southern conservatives holding them back. 
anti, or I should say cold warriors, blocking them from, from embracing the causes of peace and so on. They saw this as the opportunity to fashion a coherent, nationally integrated, liberal democratic party. And let's be honest here too. I mean, uh, yes, noble aims for sure. I don't doubt that at all. People looking at the abhorrent nature of the segregationist South. And yet like this was a, this was an opportunity. This was a potential power grab for these foundations, for these institutions, for these nonprofits, for these kind of advocacy organizations, right. To, to, to get a place at the table institutionally inside the democratic party. I mean, this must have looked like just the most amazing opportunity to say, you know, uh, anyone who was, uh, had any, any kind of, you know, um, directorship or whatever over foundations and organizations. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a huge opportunity and it encouraged a lot of social movements that were like, let's take, um, civil rights was already by 1968, 69, 70, you know, it was already fairly institutionalized as right. we would say, right? Yeah. They're already- That's the like, word I would say. You see like, you know, the, I don't mean to be as cynical as this, but like the DeRays and the rest of them had already sort of like formed their foundations in way less cynical and more, I think I'm more, uh, they weren't that cynical back then. Were they, Adam? Tell me they weren't. They're on the postage stamps for God's sakes. They're heroes. No, they, they, I think they, they were, they were, they were riding on the major victories, right? That through the middle sixties right. had essentially dismantled Southern Jim Crow. Um, oh, yeah. and they were looking to figure out as, as all social movements inevitably do, as the movement was demobilizing and fracturing, they were looking for ways to, of course, consolidate their victories and, and build the possibility for, for future gains. The women's movement is, is a little bit less institutionalized at the time, but they are at almost peak mobilization and they, uh, the National Women's Political Caucus becomes an incredibly active organization in shaping party reform. Uh, we had some, you know, by 6970, the anti-war movement is, I'd say, ebbing a little bit, but we definitely have student uh, students driving uh, into the party. And, and you know, there are, there are a lot of, there's a lot of minutia in the changes they make to the party. And I'm going to spare you that. I'm not going to go into the weeds. The book touches on some of this and references mm-hmm. other books that go really deep into the weeds. So I'm not going to bore you with that stuff, but fundamentally they, they, they frame their project as, um, as a two part project. One, they want to open the party. That is, they want to make anyone who wants to participate in the party. This is kind of a bit of a flair, a nod to participatory democracy, very in vogue at the time. You can see its links, you know, to earlier to the SDS organization. They want to make it a participatory party. So they want everyone who wants to, to have a role in saying who the nominee will be. Um, this is the advent of the nomination process that we now know. The, these, these are binding state level primaries, right? That when people go into primaries and they vote for candidate X or candidate Y, whoever, whatever percentage those candidates get in that primary, that state delegation will have that amount of people at the national convention, right, to vote. Before, state party leaders were free to ignore the results of primaries, right, and staff up their party delegations however they wanted, or they could just not hold a primary at all 
and they could actually just do it in literally locked rooms to decide who's, who's going to be the party nominee. So the party's monopoly, right? The state party's monopoly on the presidential nomination is effectively abolished by opening up the party. They also require those state parties. They have really stringent affirmative action guidelines that go through. And we see the attendance of African-Americans, women, and people under 30 skyrocket between 1968 Mm -hmm. and 1972. Then beyond just opening the party, given the concerns that had animated frustrated labor liberals um, for the prior decades uh, in confronting Southern Democrats who frustrated their programs for reform, New politics reformers also wanted to build a nationally integrated party. They actually wanted to not just pull the nomination away from the monopoly of state parties. They wanted all the state parties to have to work to implement the national party platform. They wanted to make the party programmatically coherent and cohesive. And so this meant building up the power of the national party or whoever made up the national party to exercise discipline over what, let's say, rogue Democrats did. You couldn't be elected as a Democrat and then work against the party once you were elected. This meant building in an actual formal membership, which, of course, American parties don't have a dues paying rank and file about who who constituted the national party. It meant implementing, again, like the Labour Party or other European Social Democratic parties, regular two-year conferences where the leadership of the party would have to come face-to-face and account for their performance in office against the party rank and file. It meant integrating state parties together into regional blocks. Again, there are a lot of details to this I don't want to go into, but they imagined building a party that the American political system has never seen before. It would have so much internal organization. Uh, again, these things are usually much more on the hollow side of things. Right. So in this two-part project, effectively, they're able to implement opening the party and they're able to begin the construction of an actual national democratic party. Then we come to 1972. An anti-war leader and a spokesperson for the new politics movement George McGovern, senator from South Dakota, gets the nomination and is crushed by Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon carries in 1972, 49 of 50 states, excluding my home state of uh, Massachusetts. And McGovern picks up D.C., of course. But other than that, it's a landslide defeat, uh, not just for McGovern, but it delivers a powerful blow to the legitimacy of the reform movement. This gives the opponents, right, those who are losing their power over the party because of the reforms, this finally gives the opponents the window of opportunity they need to start reforming the reforms in the years after this. And long story short, the mix of victory and defeat through this long contentious struggle is Mm -hmm. that part of the new politics program opening the party is successful and is institutionalized. And that's what we have now. That's why we have the nominating system we have now. uh, Quick aside, obviously, it's also contagious. And the Republican Party adopts the same thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I can return to that if you want. But more importantly, the project of integrating this now really open party, the project of building some internal organization 
that would have a role in mobilizing and educating voters in holding the party leadership to account for their performance on the party program. This aspect is torpedoed by the counter mobilization. And so this mix of, of victory and defeat ends up layering these new reforms to open the party over what is already a really decentralized party. And so we get this hollow party, this party that does not have the ability really to organize itself, uh, does not have the ability, does ha not have much inherent internal legitimacy, and that is going to become so dependent on the advocacy universe for its ability to compete in elections. Uh, this is the outcome uh, that, that we get. Uh, it was no one's design. The new politics reformers didn't want this. The counter reformers didn't want this. But as a result of their, their bouts of contention over the course of the early 1970s, this is what we get. An astonishingly open and, uh, and surprisingly capacious, if not still sort of like hollow from a, the perspective of like, say, personnel. It's it's really it's a it's a wild institutional configuration that that yeah I, I love how you've narrated this and of course let's 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 kind of dance across the third way very briefly I don't know if you can give us a thirty second gloss on the advent of the third way this is something that most of us have lived through uh, or if we haven't lived through it we've it's it's sort of impacted our lives. Uh, but your book sort of characterizes Obama as a, a kind of twisted deliverance of a certain kind of cynical conclusion, if you will, uh, a, a dialectical photosynthesis of the kind of advocacy-oriented um, kind of trajectory uh, in a convoluted sort of way. Now, that's the part of the book that puzzled me the most. I'm, I'm not entirely exactly sure what you're getting at. Spell that out for us before bringing us to present and then talking about how the left is going to completely take. I'm just kidding. No, we're, <laughs> we'll get to some of the more contentious debates uh, in the end about what to do with the Democratic Party, how the left should engage in, around, through, with, or against the Democratic Party. But let's talk about what happened during Obama because you you explained something that I, has sort of happened right underneath my nose, but I feel like I missed it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. so the advocacy party that the Democratic Party has become, this form of party, uh, has given rise to a set of dilemmas for uh, presidential candidates who are, of course, and formally, the party leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a few different approaches to how to conduct party governance in the modern era. Um, uh, on the one hand, and we can, we can talk about this more at length if you want, the new Democrats of the Democratic Leadership Council and the presidency of Bill Clinton took an exceptionally antagonistic approach uh, to the advocacy party. They basically wanted to unmake this structure, and they tried really hard to, to re-empower uh, party officials and elected office holders and to diminish the influence of some of the more heavyweight advocates, uh, if you will, uh, such as civil rights organizations and, and, and labor unions. But Barack Obama actually really struck a different kind of posture, positioning himself uh, as what I've kind of labeled an advocate in chief, mm. is rather than, than opposing this, is Obama really tried to harness the power 
of the advocacy party, while of course never ceding control of the party to the universe of advocates to which he really directly spoke. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the reasons I came around to this name was that one of the first things Obama did, I believe in his very first press conference, when asked about the uh, question of uh, LGBTQ rights and, and same-sex marriage, he promised that he would be a fierce advocate on their behalf. And, and he's going to wear out the soles of his shoes walking the picket lines and so on and so forth. So so maybe maybe I maybe I sort of hop skipped and jumped over the third way a little bit too much here because really Obama ends up sort of um embodying the sort of core core premise of the new democrats. And so far as suggesting like what is it uh, what what did the uh, oh god what was it Napoleon or one of the Napoleons uh the what is it? Etat, c'est moi, whatever the state. You know, I am the state. I. So I mean, the the assertion that you know the part that the president is the party, that they uh, constitute the party and its direction, and all the rest of it, as opposed to sort of looking at the organizations that, that comprise it in the post sixty eight sixty uh, seventy two regime. Obama embodies that all of that kind of authoritarian energy, while giving like you know rhetorical. Uh, support for the advocacy model. It's really complicated. It is. Um, are you suggesting that he's doing this cynically? That I guess I'm trying to read <laughs> through your scholarly approach here, uh, the, the nature of Obama. Yeah, Obama does something that no president had ever done before, which is that, as, as people are probably pretty familiar, Obama built a campaign apparatus unlike anything that had come before it. It, it did draw on a lot of digital advocacy and, and big usage of big data uh, that had been used in uh, uh, earlier contests by Republicans, but he really revolutionizes it and it's a bit of a quantum leap. And he deploys this in 2008. It, it mobilizes about, I think, 2.0 million registered volunteers fanning out, knocking on doors, right? For those of us who can remember that moment, it was an incredible way of campaigning. No one had quite done this before. What Obama did that was really different is that he did not demobilize the organization after his 2008 victory. Instead, it was rebranded. And it had a bit of a complicated history. At first, he folded it into the Democratic National Committee, then he took it back out. Um, but the, the key takeaway of the story here is Obama builds a personal advocacy organization. He is simultaneously president, right, with all that comes with that, while maintaining a permanent campaign apparatus that is keeping his constituents uh, tied in with his mobilizational efforts. He deploys this to try and convince Congress to lobby Congress on his behalf during several legislative signature issues, especially around Obamacare. These people begin not only targeting and, and bringing a lot of pressure against some Republicans, you know, because Obama was so keen on a bipartisan bill, but they brought a yeah. lot of their wrath and energy against Democrats, much to their chagrin and, and annoyance. And so Obama sort of keeps this grassroots energy going. Now it's, but albeit, of course, it's grassroots energy that is directed from the top down. This is an advocacy uh, a form of advocacy through which he can mobilize his supporters. And they do, be and he mobilizes them to a great degree again 
in 2012. But what they're not doing is they're not actually working on behalf of, quote unquote, the party, because we know that after 2010 and then 2012 and again in 2014, Mm. the ranks of the Democratic Party outside of the presidency are being decimated. Just decimated, losing, you know, uh, over a thousand electoral seats or whatever in 10 years and and shifting that balance of forces from federal to national or to state uh, governments. It's it's wild. And so, yeah, this is the part that confused me. I'm starting to you're you're shining some light on it now. And so my my, I had to look this up while you're speaking. It was Louis the sixth, Louis the 14th, rather. I know some of you French history nerds out there are going to be like, no, 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 I wasn't Napoleon, you fucking idiot. And so my my French history is fucking astonishingly bad, Adam. It's embarrassing. Louis the 14th, l'état c'est moi. So he incarnates the state. He is the state. All decisions must go through the state. It's It's an establishment of uh, absolute monarchy. And so Obama's le parti, c'est moi, right? And so in, the, in that, but it wasn't the party, was it? It was a sort of like alternate branded universe that came to stand in for the party because the party was disintegrating underneath of those uh, souls that were, by the way, not being worn out from walking picket lines during his presidency. <laughs> yeah. It- it's very... It's a, it's a bait and switch. It's a very strange thing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and in fact, actually, if I were finishing the book now, it was it actually came up in a debate, one of the last debates, I believe, between Biden and Trump. Actually, Biden said it. he said, I am the Democratic Party. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, when when that. Trump that's was good. trying to, when Trump was trying to paint him as uh, <sighs> as a AOC <laughs> Sander Sanderista who wanted to defund the police. Right. He uh, said, I beat those people. I beat them, Jack. I am the party. Yeah, yeah. I remember that now. That's good. And yeah, so what I want to say about Obama and the emergence, how the advocacy party structure has given rise to this role of advocate in chief, and 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 we're gonna to have to see the ways in which this plays out through the Biden presidency, is it gives rise to some fairly dysfunctional dynamics in American politics. And I mean, the, and these are, these are wider than just the concerns of, of the left. Obama did appeal, right, and framed himself, right, as a community organizer, as an activist, as an advocate. But this wasn't, it wasn't always mere lip service. Uh, there was still an amazing capacity on the part of some social movements and, and, and advocacy uh, organizations to effectively hold Obama's feet to the fire and extract important victories from him, right? The eventual foot dragging culmination of canceling Keystone, for example, right? He was very wedded to this image that he was um, cultivating about himself such that you could almost hold that hostage and it would work sometimes. Yeah. But what we got um, from that, and and that this this is a little bit more of the um, uh, dysfunctional dynamic uh, coming to the surface. Is almost all of these victories uh, uh, came through the result of unilateral presidential action. That is, they effectively aggrandize the president not just as party leader, but as an executive centered political system in which what presidents do on behalf of the groups for which they're advocating is okay. And, and this has a few problematic aspects from the perspective of those who are getting the things they want. And I need to mention that, you know, I'm passionately in support of a lot of the things that these groups want. 
whether it was same-sex marriage, whether it was uh, greater, uh, you know, Obama's efforts to try uh, through unilateral action to protect the works of some federal workers, whether it's anti-LGBTQ discrimination uh, issues beyond marriage, whether it's the cancellation of Keystone. The problem is that when you do that stuff through presidential action, through executive orders, those are really fragile victories. As we saw mm. with Trump coming in, that those effect, those victories are effectively nullified. So if that's the way we want, if we want to transform and build a better society, presidential unilateralism is a very dangerous mechanism to use. Uh, it, it's a very dangerous instrument to use because um, on the one hand, it may be ineffective. And secondly, more broadly, it, it, it grows the state. It grows the power of the executive as, as an institution to reshape society um, without any uh, checks and balances. And you don't, have to, you don't have to be an American constitutionalist to think that some restraint on the executive is probably a good thing. And so the advocacy party model and what the Democratic Party be has become has introduced what I think of as a bit of a problematic relationship between advocates and social movements and their president as party leader. This is, I mean, just so ripe to use. And again, you know, I can take as many liberties as I like. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not accountable to anyone, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> Reel me in if you have to. This is so ripe to use this, this final chapter as, as a way of understanding the sort of inherent tensions and contradictions of, say, the rise of the squad, right? Because what, who is AOC if not? a certain kind of embodiment of this advocate model that was in some way, in some way, invented by Obama the, in, in the sense of being a political entrepreneur. He produced this kind of category, this, this category of an agent in the world for AOC to embody, at least partially, even if in a, in a very kind of adversarial way. Right. In, in response, in reaction to even, you know, as we know, the dialectical sort of uh, sort of the dialectics you see as I scratch my chin beard <laughs> of history is such that we end up, um, you know, embodying the kind of subject positions of our adversaries in ways that sort of go on behind our back. Right. Which is just a really kind of snooty, fancy way of saying that no matter how hard, you know, you try to face down an enemy, oftentimes you embody the positions that the enemy uh, either adopted or in, in some instances invented. And so a the AOCs, the squads, uh, even Bernie, to in a sense, is going to embody in some way this kind of advocate-in-chief model. Am I onto something here? Are there inherent tensions in the way that the left – in the political arena, in the electoral politics arena, has emerged that will produce some tensions and contradictions along the lines that you're suggesting. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it, the advocacy party, and and of course we could speak also to the broader political culture uh, that surrounds it. You know, this is the inheritance that has been transmitted from these conflicts in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And reformers, those with, you know, the most principled and, and honorable intentions, reformers have to operate on the ground of the inheritance, right? They are ensconced mm -hmm. in a party and a wider electoral system. And we may want to come back to those, to possibilities around those changes. 
but they they operate on a terrain in which this these are the paths to power these are are the ways of, of doing it and i don't want to at all give the impression that that advocates of the aoc bernie other other variety cannot mm. deliver great things for people they really can um, yeah, I, we don't want to see people reading this book and then using advocate as a like a slur or a smear on Twitter like next week. That would be not that would not be your intention if, if I'm getting it correct. Yeah, not at all. No, I, the, yeah. the the attempt the attempt I'm trying to make in the book is actually really to to come to terms with the double sidedness of this. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, had the Democratic Party taken a different path, had the reformers of 1968 got everything they wanted. Um, we would probably be in a very different kind of political universe where where maybe we would be all actually organized into fairly robust Democratic Party organizations. But the fact is the party instead got hollowed out and we are drawn into one or another party orbit by the groups, causes and movements we identify with and the organizational advocates that that try to gain some kind of leverage over party office holders. And, and I must suggest, and I mean, as you are well aware, this was one of Leo Panitch's most, uh, I think, important contributions to the American political scene stuff. He would remind me often on this very podcast or in person or via email, he'd say, well, Adam, don't you know? <laughs> That's my Leo impression. It's not very good. <laughs> it's it's actually quite a gift that the American political system was never inst- the party system was never institutionalized the way that it was in Britain. Because imagine had those uh, reform. I'm sure he said this to you many times. Imagine had those reforms been uh, ushered in without challenge, you would have had a, a kind of top down, not top, a membership oriented, institutionalized party structure that would have been sub- would have gone through the political economic pressures of neoliberal globalization that resulted in the kind of Blairite party in the UK and all of the other transformations in the parliamentary systems and the labor parties across the world. We would have seen a very similar thing in the United States, if not worse. And then we would have had to contend with this kind of uh, uh, rock-solid institutional formation that was very resistant to change to try to get into it from the outside, which have been a lot, which would have been a lot harder to do. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, I mean, this is what this is what American leftists need to understand. It is a blessing that we are are granted this hollowed out like party structure. It's a challenge, and and we need to understand the challenges. But it is a it's a blessing. And to see people dismiss that blessing in the United States and, and kind of romanticize this like, idealized kind of like labor party parliamentary system that exists in other countries, I think it's really wrongheaded. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, the way I've put this before is especially when a lot of uh, my students, you know, like to ask, uh, as you would in any introductory American politics course, why are there only two parties? United States, right? It's and you know it's yeah. it's an emergent property of of many different factors, but one of them uh, that I like to I, I like to call uh, it's the strength of weak parties. Mm-hmm. You know, these parties are institutional and have always been institutionally weak when we compare them to say their European counterparts or 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 elsewhere. That is, they are very permeable especially since the advent of primaries there obviously what we saw with trump is that 
given the right set of circumstances, an insurgent can be literally unstoppable from capturing the leadership of the party. Yeah, and, and so a strength of, I mean, a reason that we have had two parties and the same two parties, the strength of the two-party system is that they're weak parties and that they can actually change so much. As another colleague has uh, put it, um, they're amoeba-like. They change, they adapt, they reform, you know, not automatically, of course, but but it, they can they can traverse through quite a, a wide range of historical settings and, and political configurations. And yeah, now that, that does not make them, that does not make them very effective weapons or very effective instruments for transforming society. But the American state, the American political system is, is built to not be transformed. Uh, it absorbs, it absorbs those efforts um, in comparative terms very easily, as was designed. And the parties play a role in that. But yeah, you could imagine we have a labor party, uh, something akin to the British Labor Party. It's still going to be, according to um, my argument, uh, a contentious institution. It's still going to be one in which the base and the leadership are in fracturous tension about, uh, well, who's really in charge? Are you doing really what we want you to do? And so on. But it's that's a bit of the, it's what you might call the curse of politics. You know, it's it humans have a very difficult time living in communities. And that's why we have politics. Again, people seem astonished that there are politics going on inside and around the Democratic Party. Shocking. Of course, what the astonishing part is the, the links at which our enemies will go to thwart us. But I guess, you know, maybe uh, we need a little bit of that ourselves. Uh, so let's get to, unfortunately, the last five, ten minutes here. I've got to let you go. You've been very generous with your time. You're a busy guy. Uh, let's get to some of the more thorny questions um, that we teased at the at the opening here. What are your prescriptions? <laughs> this is something that I know, again, as a respectable academic, you just, you know, you can't mouth off like I can. But what are your prescriptions here? What, what are your, what are some of the fault lines? What are some of the key lacunae, if you will, <laughs> in the way that the left and American public in general conceptualizes uh, parties and party change? I need to have you back on, honestly. We need to do part two of this at some point, if you'd be so generous with your time to to really dig into some of the contemporary debates. But um uh, What's really what what really comes to mind here above all? Well, I think we're in a period of a lot of ferment. The American party system is at a crossroads to be sure. Now that's of course more true because of what's going on on the right. And I know we have not spent much time talking about the Republican Party and and my book is not about that and there are many many fine books on the Republican Party. Um but what's going on on the right is really difficult at least for me to explain, that a major majority political party is running off the edge into the abyss of right-wing insanity Mm. is difficult for me to explain. And I'm not sure many people know how to explain it. There's a lot of contending arguments out there, but it is really, obviously, really important. At the same time, while we may not be able to understand what's going on there, it, we're in a period where I think the polarization, the stalemate, the frustration, the, the absolutely abysmal levels of trust that people have in government right now has opened up a lot of fresh thinking about what can be done. And we're seeing at state levels and in some state contests for, uh, you know, the electoral college and so on, we're seeing some movement, which is encouraging, right? We're seeing some, some experiments in ranked choice voting. 
we're seeing some experiments in, in a little bit more of a proportional way of distributing electoral college votes. Now, you know, that's not going to solve all our problems at all. But I think it's encouraging that, that at some mass level, people are active around the issue of making changes to our electoral institutions that could promote uh, or at least open space for different kinds of political organizations, parties, movements, at least breaking from um, the spoiler problem that, of course, has always been uh, the stumbling block of all minor parties. I mean, ideally, of course, uh, I, I could recommend to some people, um, Lee Drutman has written an interesting book on breaking what he calls the two-party doom loop. You don't have to agree with with uh, with all of his positions, but he lays out a pretty fairly, I think, persuasive account why proportional representation would be very helpful for the moment. A prescription depends on the goal, right? What we want, what we want to get. If we want to launch an independent party, and if that's something is really important for people, I don't see how any third party could ever displace one of the existing major parties without any changes to how we conduct elections. Single member district, winner take all, plurality systems are two party systems, uh, unless you have really significant regional regional variation like you might find in the UK or um, India or Canada. But here we've got these two parties and these two parties are not going anywhere short of major changes to how the game is played. So if you want a third party or if you want a new party, if you want a labor party or something, you got to change the electoral rules. If instead the, the trouble is that let me jump in here, sure. though. But the trouble, though, is, is that the, 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 the bodies of, of humans, the bodies of people who comprise the committees that, uh, that control these electoral rules are themselves party apparatchiks, are they not? And so this would be, you know, akin to uh, thinking about a snake fully devouring itself. I mean, I, I don't mean to be, you know, produ- produce some kind of like uh, hopeless, like you know, nihilistic narrative of defeat, defeatism, but um, that that is the the scenario in in a lot of places, isn't it? Well, that's always, yeah, that's always been a, a major obstacle. At the same time, we have seen examples, especially if we look abroad, where incumbent parties, right, that have historically benefited from the status quo electoral arrangements do enact huge huge electoral system transformations. All of Western Europe, which is now all multi-member proportional representation, began, did not begin that way, right? They, they all began as single-member pluralities, uh, the same system we have now. And at various times in various places, and we could more recently, we could look to you know, New Zealand or, or um, uh, some other uh, more recent examples, but they've made changes. Changes can happen. It usually, again, depends on the right amount of political agency and the right amount of contingency happening at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, so I don't want to paint it as as impossible. Right. I just, I just, yeah. I mean, I think that's 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 a really important reframe. I want definitely don't want to. I certainly I, I bend towards optimism. You know, believe it or not, and <laughs> I really do. I'm an optimist at at, at heart. What I have a problem with is sort of simplistic narratives about how this might get done. Yes. Right. Sim- that, that, that's, that's my target right now. And what are, what are some of those simplistic narratives according to, you know, your, your estimation that, that you find to be troubling or limited? Oh, well, um, I mean, 
not to put you on the spot. I could throw out a few and ask what you think about them. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's always your constitutional conventions. There's the sort of third party kind of voting your uh, voting your principles, you know, um, try to get past that 5% mark, build the party and get national recognition and resources. Um, you know, there's a lot of different models out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this my personally, and this is a little bit more of a narrow issue before I speak to something broader. Without a change to our electoral rules, unless you live in a state or or a district with uh, ranked choice voting or some other alternative arrangement, I think holding your nose and voting for the Democratic Party is the right thing to do right now. That's personal. I, I don't actually think that I have authority to tell anyone else to do that. But if you can explain to me why voting green does not affect the spoiler problem, which is that you take votes away from Democrats and end up helping Republicans win, then by all means, go ahead. But to me, I, I fundamentally at the, at the, at the abstract level, I still see uh, the spoiler problem is, is unavoidable within the current electoral rules. And I'd rather see Democrats win uh, than Republicans. The, but more grandly, let's just to take a step back and maybe, you know, we do need another show where we do dwell in depth about the various um, recommendations out there. Let's just remember that no procedural or institutional tinkering is the silver bullet that we need. Right. Um, we are, we're facing in the United States and we're facing all over the place. If we're on the left side of the spectrum, we're facing a political problem, right? Mm -hmm. Not a problem about rules. I mean, rules matter. Rules matter a, a great degree. And if there are moments like, you know, to, to take a kind of current example, if there are rules like the filibuster that are actually pre preventing majority rule from working, then yes, that should be abolished. Absolutely. Those rules should be changed so that political power can be exercised in, in a, in a more coherent way, uh, in a way I should say that, that more accurately reflects the actual political balance of power. But what I mean is that I don't think we should get too caught up in electoral or institutional changes and expect that that's going to solve all the problems. My position has been for a long time, and it's not always a popular one, but it's one I'll say. From my perspective, the left is a fairly significant minority uh, at the United States. I don't think the United States is majority conservative, or it's certainly not majority Republican. Um, in fact, according to news reports, the Republican Party's registration rate has dropped significantly since uh, January 6th. But what I mean is the the the, le the actual left is a fairly small percentage of the population. Uh, someone did an interesting study based on public opinion. As far as that goes, <laughs> we can get into the problems of public opinion. But as far as it goes, someone entertained, okay, let's say there were five parties, right? We had multi-member proportional representation. There are five parties now, not two. The two big parties disaggregate into five different ones. Um, the far left party uh, gets about 10% of the vote. So that to me, I mean, the Social Democratic Party gets another 25%. So altogether, if let's say that's a block, we're at 35, 45%. But I, I do think we're a minority. And I think the way to change that is not tinkering with electoral rules, though that might help in a variety of specific contexts. Um, the way to, the way to come over that is, is political organizing and, um, and, and making political change to changing the way people 
think about themselves and and politics and uh, the way politics might be used to build a better world. Uh, institutional change alone won't help us there. Um, it's shifting, it, shifting, broadening our focus to shift. God damn it, Adam! I'm so mad at you for making me say this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold on. You're making me say this. This is against my will. By shifting the metaphorical Overton window. <laughs> there you go. You said it. <laughs> Damn it! Uh, we, I thought I was going to get through the whole episode without dropping that one. But but really though, I mean, to, 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 in a, a non kind of like uh, just banal lib way, uh, you know, shifting uh, uh, what Gramsci would just call processes of like you know uh, hegemonic um, occupation. There we go. Like occupying a kind of hegemonic, um, establishing left hegemony in broader society. Which, by the way may not come along with like proportional left-wing interest in the political arena. Mm -hmm. That's something that we need to think about, right? Because history, (laughs) wait for it, Adam, this is the, damn it. This is a, I've got a lot of insights right now. History moves, (laughs) right? Yeah. Things change. And so, so when you move society in a leftward direction in a worker oriented direction, in a direction of you know, humanism, uh, you know, you might not see in that new on that new terrain. You might not see uh, a, a proportional increase in the representation of the left in the party and electoral system. But the but the, but the society nonetheless has radically moved. I'd suggest we're in a moment like that right now, uh, where we might be under kind of like a what you know a hegemonic. We have an opportunity for hegemonic consolidation if we play our cards right, but those but different uh, aspects of society often lag. Some some sort of uh, run way ahead of the others. Others lag behind. Others lag way behind because of structural, legal, institutional problems such as the Senate, such as our like electoral rules that we're talking about right now. And so looking at it in broader context, I think is really important that that one rule change isn't going to be the thing, but it might help sort of consolidate our, our power in, in, in broader society. Yeah. And, and I just to bring it back to to parties and the Democratic Party in particular, um, the AOCs and the squads and the Sanders of the world play a role in that shift in, in, right. in building that kind of power. They're the battering ram, and it's the party vehicle that gives them the opportunity to do that. Exactly, and that that as as all of them have demonstrated, that party vehicle is, uh, you know, it's got its front door is wide open. Yeah, it sure is. Now, if that's not a mic drop moment, I don't know what is. We're going to have to go ahead and leave it there, and I'll invite you back for a part two, definitely to talk about some of the more contentious, heated. Uh, debates, you know, such as force the vote, such as the kind of movement for a people's party, such as the uh, fleeing of of some leftists into like the Green Party. Uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of discussions about this, and and yet it's like very contradictory, isn't it? Because we're going to see more left challengers in 2022 than we have ever seen in any time before. I mean, there's just this exponential explosion since 2016. You know, starting with AOC and then the expansion of the squad. And now you're seeing, you know, uh, just insurgent left campaigns all across the country. But that doesn't mean we're going to win. <laughs> we might lose badly. It might be held up as um, as the Humphreys moment uh, going forward. And so there's just there's just, you know, history is wide open, but uh, but it's fraught. And I appreciate your 
your scholarly seriousness uh, here to uh, keep me grounded in this conversation. And let's do a round two. Again, Adam Hilton teaches politics at Mount Holyoke. Uh, go ahead and introduce the book for us. It's coming out in March. So very, very soon. Yeah. And, uh, scheduled for the end of March. Uh, the title of the book is True Blues, The Contentious Transformation of the Democratic Party. Uh, from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, you can find it on their website. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, you should be able to order it uh, from any place you want. Hell yeah. Give it a pre-order um, on uh, you know independent bookstore. Make your university library order it if you're an academic out there. That's big. Uh, force uh, force them to spend those uh, you know those uh, tuition dollars in, in the right directions. Adam Hilton, come back on real soon. We'll do a part two as soon as that book comes out. Appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks so much, Adam.